What's good, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is Mark Soboyle. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Awesome. He is the proud owner of Shellscapes. Um, also lives in my neighborhood. And uh, I thought I'd bring him out here to understand his whole business. Um, first off, though, I understand that you used to live in South Africa, Cape Town? Yeah. yeah. So I tell, grew up in Cape Town. Tell me all about that first. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Cape Town. It's a, a beach town. I grew up surfing, doing a lot of sailing. A beautiful city. And I was there until my early 20s. And then I moved over to the U.S. Uh, to study. Uh, to UW, actually, oh, in Seattle. Wow. Yeah. So I moved out here um, in the early, mid-90s, and uh, finished up at the UW. How does a young boy um, find University of Washington all the way from Cape Town? <laughs> Good question, actually. Um, so my dad had actually immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-80s, and uh, I got an opportunity to move here. I got a green card through him. Um, so I have a couple other siblings, um, but I was really the only one that kind of took up the opportunity. So I'd actually started uh, university in, in South Africa already. So I thought, ah, it'll just be an easy transition, come over, transfer. <laughs> but when I got here, I realized it actually wasn't that easy. So um, I still had to become a Washington State resident. Um, and then obviously getting into the UW, back, even back in those days, was quite tough. So... Um, I ended up um, working for a while uh, just to become a a Washington State resident. So I had become a a scuba instructor, um, you know, in my late teens. And I used to work and teach diving as a way to kind of earn extra money kind of as I was going through university. So when I moved out here, I ended up um, getting a job in the Caribbean as a dive instructor and, uh, you know, that's how I became uh, a Washington State resident by working in the, in the Caribbean, Caribbean. <laughs> for a year. But it was a way, you know, I could get my, my, my residency because, um, you know, I could show that I was kind of living, living with my dad, mm-hmm. um, you know, for that, for that over that year or so. And then I came back, um, obviously needed to get into UW. And I think back then... The easiest way to do it, because it wasn't easy to do a transfer, um, I was considered a, um, a foreign student, and it's really tough. And I wouldn't say I was like the greatest student back then. Um, so I went to a community college um, and for a year. And then I don't know if they still have that type of setup, but when you go to a community college, Back then, you could do just do a transfer after you've got your AA degree. Mm-hmm. And so I, w- I went, to, went to community college for a year, got, my, got an AA degree, I think it was, that's what it's called, and then I was able to transfer um, to the UW and then just finished up my undergrad there. And, and what were your studies? So my undergrad was actually in marine biology. Um, and then I ended up uh, getting um, a graduate degree um, in, in marine biology, focusing more on kind of fisheries. And I did a, I did a master's um, thesis in Costa Rica, and I was looking at uh, tropical reef fish and the destruction of that fishery through the aquarium trade fishery. So they kind of focus on 
juvenile fish because they're kind of small and they're colorful. Mm-hmm. But it's really destructive. So we looked at, so I spent you know, a good year in Costa Rica living there. Tell me a little bit more about that because it's interesting to me that, you know, I understand puppy mills and such, but I, yeah, tropical fish. And how does it um, affect the coral reefs and such? So, I mean, that's a, really another, another issue too. So a lot of the coral reefs are getting affected by um, just local runoff, the stream runoff. So a lot of the agriculture the fertilizers they use um, kind of get mixed into you get you know just through just general runoff gets mixed in the in the rainwater and then um, that and then the silts as well from the um, from the farms get you know gets pulled in because you know with agriculture you're essentially removing a lot of the you know indigenous plant growth that the root structures are holding the soil mm-hmm. together. So when that gets tilled, the, a lot of the silt then gets, you know, kind of drains back into the river systems. And um, so it's a combination of the fertilizer and the silt in the water that, that when it gets um, pushed back into the ocean, that kind of clogs up the, the, um, the coral. Um, so they have difficulty surviving. And um, when that happens, there's like a symbiotic relationship between the coral and the algae that live in the coral. So the, the, people don't realize that the coral coral's white, and the, the reason why it's colorful is actually the algae that lives mm. <clears throat> that lives in the in the coral. So so um, when the coral has difficulty surviving, the the algae kind of exits and, the, and you get coral bleaching. And that's just, you know, one, one component of the issue mm-hmm. around coral dying. I mean, the other is obviously global warming and the heating up of the oceans. And when we take yeah. those tropical fish out of those areas, does that affect the cleaning of the coral and, and such? Yeah, I mean, there are um, like parrotfish, there are certain fish that, you know, live off the coral. But um, when you when you do remove those, those key you know, those key players on the coral reefs, it kind of affects the whole biodiversity on the on the reef structure. So, um, and it becomes really noticeable as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get other, you know, once you kind of remove um, a lot of those um, key species on the reef, you know, you may get other, other animals that are come in to replace it. But... Um, yeah, it's what I noticed when I was because uh, they're not schooling fish as well. They they sedentary, so they tend to be independent, live, be into very independent, um, and stay in one place. And so, when you remove them and you go down these reefs, you particularly after a team of divers have gone down and and removed a lot of those um, those key species, you you just know there's no fish on the reef. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and it takes a really long time for them to get replaced. Right. Yeah. We were just talking about um, <clears throat> water runoff on the streets here in Bainbridge last week. And, uh, you know, it, it's supposed to be taken care of. And it's, <laughs> it's been on the docket basically for 20 years here on Bainbridge Island. How do you see, um, I know this is kind of out of your scope perhaps, but what do you see a solution to, you know, filtering the rain off? You know, it goes right down Madison Avenue and by the ferry and enters, 
you know, with the oil and the gasoline off the streets right back into the ocean. Um, what kind of solutions might you have for something like that? Yeah, it's interesting that, um, so I started this company, Shellscapes, about three years ago, um, started to recycle this oyster shell. So my career had kind of t- taken an interesting turn. I um, I had got into a lot of fisheries management stuff, and um, and I noticed, you know, during COVID, um, I couldn't travel as much and couldn't really do th- some of the things that I was doing before. So we started recycling the shell because um, I just saw these big middens. There's a lot of oyster farms in Washington, and realized there was a resource that. Um, um, that wasn't really being you know, utilized. The, a lot of the farms, they do use the shell, but um, some of the shell, but majority of it just gets piled up. And so we, we started recycling it and looking at, at ways in, in areas where, that it can be used. And one demand we found was using it as a biofilter. So it turns out that oyster shell is really good at extracting the heavy metals Mm. from rainwater. So it's, it's essentially the copper that it's removing from, from water. And so one way in which... You, um, so a lot of the ports um, are, are starting to create these, these biofilters. So when the rainwater comes in um, and drains off you know, these big parking areas, mm-hmm. um, they're creating these, these biofilters, essentially these filters that... Uh, um, are piled with with shell, and the shell is extracting the those heavy metals. So before it enters, you know the 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 ocean, at least it's been cleaned somewhat. And it seems to be doing quite a good job. So one so one solution here on Bainbridge is is to do that. You know you've got mm. you know heavy traffic, a lot of the heavy metals, particularly in the tires. You know the way they. Um, they made there's there's a lot of heavy metals kind of mixed in in the rubber. So when you uh, um, you know driving down the road with all the trucks, so that you know as the roads get cleaned with the with the rain, that just gets pulled in and, and that you know accumulates over time. Mm-hmm. And so if you had um, you know some form of of these of these biofilters in, in key locations, you could begin to you know clean some of that rainwater before it enters, enters the sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I get that mic a little closer to you? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned copper. How does copper get into the water? So, I mean, I think it's just naturally one of those um, heavy metals that um, is used in a lot of manufacturing processes. So um, manufacturing of, of tires and, and um, yeah, all sorts of things. It's just... You know, it's just used in all components of manufacture, manufacturing. So, you know, by, I mean, these heavy metals, they bioaccumulate. So maybe they may be um, in really small um, amounts initially. But um, over time, when you're dealing with, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, um, the, when you kind of account for... Um, uh, you know, for, you know, just for growing populations, um, it ends up being qu- you know quite quite a lot mm-hmm. of of heavy metal kind of sitting in in the ecosystem, and it, it needs to get extracted because otherwise it just kind of sits and builds up. It has a really slow uh, half life, so 
Yeah, I mean, you know, can sit around for hundreds, you know. Yeah, forever. Forever, yeah. Um, I have so many questions, but the number one question I have for you is the sustainability of doing landscaping projects with oyster shells. Because when I grew up, my dad always, we would chuck oysters on the beach back when they were very plentiful. They're not so much plentiful anymore. Um, and he always said, leave the shells on the beach. So the oysters would regrow in those shells. But then I go to places like Hamahama, the, the oyster bar and the oyster farm out there, and there's just snow mounds of just fractured shells. And it's not the whole shell. Um, where does the truth lie? Do we need to leave a certain amount of oyster shells to repopulate the oyster population? Are we damaging the oyster population by using the shells? Questions like that. Yeah, I get asked that all the time. And I think that if you're going to be um, collecting oysters just from the beachfront, I would absolutely say to you, leave the shell. Because the way the life cycle of the oyster is that when it fertilizes, so essentially it's an external, it's an animal. And it's an external fertilizer. So in other words, the, um, the male and the female oysters, they will release their eggs, release the sperm into the water column. And it's within the water column that the eggs get fertilized. And once they're fertilized, the, the egg turns into a, like a swimming larvae. And so they swim around part of their initial life cycle until they get to a certain size, and then they settle. And for that, so when the lava settles, it needs to settle on a hard substrate to be able to turn into an oyster that you eat. So the best substrate is other oysters. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's, it's good, um, you know, it's just good practice to be able to, you know, have um, put your shell back into the ocean to create that substrate so the and that's whether oysters, you barbecue your oysters or shuck them raw. Chuck right? them raw, yeah. But now, you know, over the last few years, I would say over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a real drive to, when you go to a restaurant, you, you tend to want to eat a, a live oyster and in a, in a half shell. Boy, and, do I. <laughs> and so, you know, if you have a natural, a natural, like a natural oyster that just grows in the ocean, the oyster, the shape of the shell will essentially grow to the shape of the substrate it's growing on. So when you go to a restaurant, you want a nice-looking oyster versus just a shell conglomerate mm-hmm. with, with, a, with, an, with small a little small oyster. muscle inside it. So to be able to do that, it has to grow in a hatchery. So majority of oyster farms now, they actually grow their oysters in a in the initial part of their life cycle in a hatchery. So they're called hatchery-raised oysters. So they fertilize the oyster in the hatchery. They create the substrate, artificial substrate. The oysters grow to a certain size. And then once they kind of a baby-looking oyster, they then place those oysters back into the, into the ocean, and then they'll grow out. And that gives you that nice-looking oyster. But this means is that you artificially um, expanding the amount of, firstly, the number of oysters that would normally just grow um, in the Puget Sound. 
and um, you don't need to create an artificial substrate or create new, necessarily new substrates for the lava to settle on. So you, all you're doing is you're taking the baby oyster and putting them back down on the mud flats to be able to grow out again, um, which means that all the old oyster that they used to collect when they would chuck the meat, um, that's not needed as much to, uh, to place in, into the sound. Um, so that's one reason why... The, based on how, many, how much we're farming them? It's just the amount that we're farming them and the way that, you know, the hatcheries are, are growing these, you know, growing these oysters. So that's, that's one reason. And then the other, the other component, too, is that um, there's just natural die-off as well. So when, they, um, when they're collecting the oysters, there's just a natural mortality. I'm not sure exactly what the percent is when, they, when they're harvesting them. But there's a certain percent that are just dead and they can't be sold. So it's that shell as well that accumulates over time. So there's kind of a steady rate of shell just accumulating from the, just the natural mortality of shell. And number two, when they, when they bring the shell into the factories, some of it will go live into the restaurants, but they also continue to chuck some of the shell and bottle it. And then it's that shell that accumulates. So mm-hmm. it's that excess shell. That's the, that's the shell that we're using and then recycling for things like um, the landscaping industry and or as, as biofold as um, in, okay. in some areas. Yeah. I'll ask some more questions about oysters because they yeah. fascinate me. But um, let's get to the crux of your business. What were you, what were you doing before this? So um, I was... Uh, a fishery specialist, like a technical specialist, I got a PhD in economics. And um, so I linked the, the component of, of fish growth, fish biology, with um, economics, which is the sustainable extraction of resources. Mm. Um, so we would do things like what we would call bioeconomic work. And essentially what you're trying to do is understand the... Um, the, the biology of the fish stock to figure out okay how, how quickly do these these animals regenerate and then from an economic standpoint figuring out like, what's an, what's a sustainable extraction rate so as once you've figured that out then you can begin to implement management measures around uh, catch limits mm-hmm. um, size limits and then you know you work with with local governments to try to, uh, you know, introduce legislation so that fishing companies will kind of, you know, ensure that they're they're not over-harvesting. So I had built a career. I started my career actually in New Zealand. So I did did a a postdoc in New Zealand thinking, oh, I'll just go down for a year and, and then come back to the States but I love New Zealand so much. Oh, it's just, gorgeous. You've been down there. It's a yes. beautiful country, right? And um, I was a big surfer, and I was surfing a lot, and I was just loving the lifestyle. And I hadn't, I didn't have any you know, kids. I wasn't married then. So it ended up being 13 years. And during that period, you know, I'd married and got kids. But I also developed this career focusing um, on fisheries management in developing countries. 
So I'd work with um, donor agencies or um, the UN or the World Bank funding and then go into these developing countries as a technical specialist and work with um, local authorities um, to try and improve fisheries management by collecting better, better data and then how to use that data for fisheries management purposes. So I was doing a lot of traveling. I was away at home a lot, but I was loving it. Mm-hmm. And I'd, so I'd spent a whole career doing that. And suddenly COVID, <laughs> COVID hit and I, I couldn't travel um, and I was limited to the amount of work that I was doing. And that's when I thought, okay, let's, let's take up this opportunity to see whether I can work some of these farms to, to recycle shell. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's how it really turned out. Wow. So it was kind of uh, – but um, I also knew there was this um, – uh, that you know, this idea that we could actually use shell in landscaping. So I'd, I'd grown up – in a family of landscapers. My, my mom owned a landscaping company, and um, I used to work for her as Did a you kid. say you'd never do that when you grow up? <laughs> I did. When I was a kid, I, you know, I thought, ah, oh, I hated this. But yeah. um, I actually, thinking about it, I really loved it. I mean, some of those times, you know, working as a laborer and running around in these trucks, mm-hmm. it was, I mean, you know, you learn by osmosis. And, you know, now I'm like in my early 50s, when I think back at those days, and I must have learned a lot, because now that I'm back in the landscaping industry, a lot of the stuff I just know. Second nature, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's intuition. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing when you're young how you kind of… Yeah, I used to hate gardening because our garden was so massive. You know, we, we were off the grid for a long time, and that was our food supply, you know, and butchering the animals, I didn't care for that either. But um, now, you know, gardening's my favorite thing. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, my and it's and it's uh, it's calming, isn't it? It's really yes. calming. Like it's my I, peaceful place. It's so peaceful. Like for me, um, I my favorite day is when I'm actually working with the team. Mm. I hate having to sit in the office and take calls and do estimating. I just love just working with the team. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get an opportunity to do that very often anymore, but. When I do it, yeah, like your business of- grew quick. Yeah, well, yeah. A couple of things. It's funny because uh, my son said you were from South Africa, and I was like, no, he's from New Zealand. And then I ran into you last week, and we started talking a bit, and uh, you had such a New Zealand accent back then, <laughs> and and now I can see it's starting to wear off from the first time I met you. Okay, yeah. Uh, but the funny, it's funny you say that with, with the accent, so. When we moved here initially um, from New Zealand, my boys, you know, they were, what, eight and, I can't even remember, eight and maybe 10 and 12 maybe around mm-hmm. that age. And uh, they had a strong New Zealand accent, right? Right. Because that's where they'd gone to school. And I came in with a South African accent. And some people get confused, you know, South African, New Zealand, the Southern Hemisphere accents. Yeah, Australian. Kind of just kind of mold together. And then... Um, then my wife, you know, she was um, from Boston. So she ah. had a bit of a Boston. <laughs> People used to get completely confused. Where the hell are you guys from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bainbridge. <laughs> <laughs> so COVID hits and you don't get to travel. And you decide 
I'm going to make a move. Now, did that start with just like one truck and yourself or did you just use that economic degree and go crazy with a loan and get 12 people? How many people are working for you now? Um, around eight to 10, about 10 people. Yeah. That's great. And it's seasonal. Keep in mind. I mean, in the summer, you're a lot busier, mm-hmm. you know, once kind of the fall and winter comes in, things die down a lot. Yeah. It's hard to yeah. make new driveways in the mud. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah that, that one driveway um, between your house and my house turned out really good that you did. Oh, uh, thanks, yeah. I think on the island. Yeah. yeah. Is that how you say that that road, island? Uh, I know it's misspelled. Island, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay. Right, yeah. That turned out really nice. Now, you did you do, just start with yourself and, or so, how did that work out? So when I started out, um, I had started working with a, just a local um, garden like a small crew of, of people here on the island because um, I didn't really have a crew and um, my Spanish was pretty poor even though I'd lived in Costa Rica mm-hmm. and most people speak English. So my Spanish was, was not great. But I started working with a small crew and they started doing a lot of the installations for me. And at the time, you know, I was um, unsure of, you know, where this company was going to go. Um, but we knew you know, we had a point of difference utilizing Shell and, and using that for landscaping. It was it was a new idea on the West Coast. Um, yeah, because it's popular in like Cape Cod and yeah, Boston. And- absolutely. East Coast, you see it a lot, down Florida. But here on the West Coast, you don't see it as much. No. So it wasn't, and I think a lot of the landscapers, you know, they get used to designing things a certain way. And when something has not really been here... So you know, and maybe a lot of them didn't really have access to the local shell, mm-hmm. but so we started doing it, and there was definitely a demand. But what I learned early on was that shell doesn't work everywhere. Number one, and number two, it's expensive. It's much more expensive than gravel because the oyster farms they understand the demand for shell, so the city. Mm-hmm. The city of Seattle, the city of Tacoma, they will buy the shell, the excess shell from the farms from time to time, and they use it to create new oyster beds, number one. And then also, like, the port of Seattle might buy a bunch of shell for those bifurls that I was telling you about. So they knew what the potential price was. So it meant that I had to buy it at the same rate that they're selling it for. And then I had to process the shell. So we had to figure out, okay, how do you process this material and use it for landscaping? So there was a, some real upfront costs. And the, and the machines that we use to process this material, it's essentially the same crushing machine that is used to crush gravel. So they're big, expensive machinery. So shell ends up being much more expensive than gravel. So it's not something that everyone can afford. Now, is there a whitening process as well? Because I think oysters are kind of grayish, dull white. And when they come out on the uh, – when I see them yeah. in, in your work, they seem bright white. Not at all. So essentially, <laughs> as soon as you take them out the water, mm-hmm. um, they will just bleach out white. So we will tend to keep the shells outside for a couple seasons, and that just get you know just it kills all the the algae and the growth that may be on the shell, mm-hmm. removes the smell, so the smell is completely inert, and um, 
Where, you where know, do you stack your shells? So we, have an, so we have an agreement with one of the oyster farms that we work closely with, and they have they own some land. So we use that area to just dry out the shell and process the material. And which farms are you um, in cahoots with? Or? So one of the big farms we're working with now, it's Minterbrook Oyster Farm, and they're, out in, they're just local. And where are they at? And Purdy, okay. the area. Yeah. So we work with them. And, um, you know, so we're still a relatively small company. And just it's much easier to just work with one farm because you can keep or you can keep your machinery there. You can process it. Yeah. I mean, there will be a point where um, you may may want to expand the company, you know, into other areas. And like they don't have Portland or endless supply of shells either. They do not have an endless so supply. So you grow too yeah. much bigger. Yeah. So you'd want to. So when when you kind of move into a new area, you probably want to partner with a farm close to that area, and then that farm will supply kind of you know the business in mm-hmm. that region. And that's kind of how Envision it may work. So, and so at the moment, the, fortunately, the farm that we're working with, the amount that you know they are um, piling up is kind of at the rate that we're using the shell. And how long has Shellscape's been around? Five years now or so? Uh, no, not even that. Three, three? three years, three or four years, yeah. Are you broke even yet? <laughs> I'd like to say yes, but sometimes I go, no. I mean, yeah. it's expensive to start a company, well, man. I, you know. Yeah, right? I do. Because yeah. I've been an entrepreneur since I was 18. Yeah. Um, and I've failed many a time, you know, and that's failure is part of success sure. in a yeah. lot of ways. But you learn a few things. And I can't imagine having the heavy machinery plus the trucks that you drive are huge. Huge. huge Gas overhead. is expensive. Gas is expensive. Minimum wage is high out here. Really high. It's really high. I mean, you know, you can't. A lot of these guys are in big in demand. So if you if you have building a crew, the only way to keep them, you need to pay them better than anyone else, right? Because you know, there's no allegiance. So you need to. So for me, you know, you want to build a crew, get guys that are hardworking, dedicated, dedicated, and knowledgeable, and then keep them. And the only way to keep them is to make sure that the, that they're busy. And you're paying them better than anyone else. Happy and proud. And happy and proud. And and that's the thing. And then the machinery is expensive. And the ferry. So, you know, <laughs> the, the, you know so yeah, our business. Yeah, it's more for a bigger ride, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, you bring, you know, like our big five-yard dump truck, bring it into the city, return. I mean, it's close to 150 bucks. It's yeah. crazy. Your margins must be so small. They are small. In landscaping, margins are not big. It's one of those things that you just got to... You know, I enjoy it. I love it, but it's not—it's not, it's not going to make you super wealthy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what's the long-term plan for you? So, <clears throat> the good thing is, is that um, the the business is keeping me local, which is awesome. Because now my kids—you know—they're both at high school now, and um, I just love the fact that on the weekends I'm here and I'm around. So that's really important for me. And we've really expanded the business to the point where the shell is just one component. So, yes. Right, right, right. Because when you first started, it was all shells. And now I see that you do some very comprehensive landscaping work. Yeah. So we do, you know, full, you know, design, build, install for all types of hardscape. So shells is one of the surfaces options. So we're always looking for kind of alternative ideas. So one other thing that we've starting to use is something called um, resin bound and it's a product that they've been doing in the UK for several years now 
But we and and I learned about it just from from my travels and the time that I've spent in the UK. And I thought, well, this could be a really good solution for the Pacific Northwest because the the weather is very similar here. Mm-hmm. And what it what it is essentially is you're taking an aggregate such as pea gravel or other coloured aggregate, and you're mixing it in with this. It's a permeable resin, and you mix it, and it's an alternative to a concrete driveway. Mm-hmm. So it creates a surface that still gives you that aggregate look, but it's completely permeable, number one, and it doesn't move. You know, if you're putting a driveway with gravel, you're always getting yeah, ruts and rocks holes, and it's sliding, and you could never build a driveway with pea gravel. It'll just go everywhere. But with this resin, it's as hard as concrete, but it's and it's permeable because often, and I say that because a lot of new builds, you need to have that that permeable to non-permeable ratio, um, particularly for homes that are closer to the waterfront, and this just creates a permeable drive. Now, um, when you lay down uh, oyster shells, do you have to put something under them, like sand or gravel as well? Yeah, for sure. So you need to put a good substrate of gravel. I mean, because because shells so expensive, we tend to just do it as the very top, top surface layer. layer. So we will put six, eight, eight inches of of gravel as your sub layer, and sometimes, depending on the slope of the driveway, we may need to lay the gravel within a geocell. Kind of holds the holds the gravel in place, and then we put the the shell on top, the crushed oyster shell on top, and then that's compacted, and that will kind of recalcify and get quite hard. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm uh, sorry. I'm pausing here, but I'm visualizing all the things I can do with my yard. <laughs> um, Cape Town, it's got 11 languages. Um, yeah. Is English your first language? Yeah, English is my first language, yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting country. You know, Nelson Mandela calls it the, the rainbow nation, and it really is that. So you know, Cape Town um, is an old city. And I think uh, Europeans started to settle there in the mid-1600s. Because it used to be a, um, a trading port, you know, before, I guess, the Suez Canal was dug. Uh, the only way to get to, to India or, you know, to the, the Far East is to kind of go via the Cape, you know, uh, Cape of Good Hope. And so Cape Town was one of those areas where people would resupply. So a very old city, you know, Europeans settled there in the, in the early, in the mid-1600s. And um, the, the first Europeans to settle there <clears throat> weren't actually the English. It was, it was the Dutch. Um, I guess back then they were, had big, you know, quite a big superpower and had um, trading ships. And so the, the Dutch, kind of that Dutch language kind of evolved into like a local language, which they call Afrikaans today. Afrikaans and Zulu. Afrikaans. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a mixture of Dutch. It has some African words in it and it has French words in it because the, the French kind of were some early settlers as well. And then because um, they have great wineries down there. So the French, uh, I mean, those wineries are, you know, started established in the 1700s yeah. from, by the French. So, and then, but the English only arrived like in the 1800s. And um, so that's kind of when my kind of family, you know, kind of started to come in. 
And the English, you know, arrived, you know, they, they, you know, they found, I think they started to find gold and diamonds in southern Africa. And I think the British thought, well, that would be good to have. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and so, um, and so it became a, you know, there was a couple wars down there and they, they called them the Boer Wars and, and then it became a British empire, a British colony. <clears throat> it was a British colony right up until the Second World War. And then um, the Second World War arrived. Um, and then after the war, um, it became, there was a new government that came in, was actually kind of an Afrikaans, more conservative government. And that's when apartheid kind of really took force just after the war. And then that kind of, you know, stayed right until um, Mandela was released from prison. And he was in prison in Cape Town, right? Yeah, he was in prison in Cape Town, yeah. Were you in Cape Town while he was incarcerated? Absolutely, yeah. So he, And what was the vibe like in your neighborhood? So, I mean, growing up in apartheid, um, you know, I mean, I was a young kid, but I think that a lot of the media was, you know, suppressed, suppressed. suppressed. And so you didn't really hear much about him uh, at all. I mean, you knew, you know, he was around and he was on Robben Island and then he was at another local prison in Polesmoor. But he, um, um, yeah, I mean, whatever, you know, the, uh, my guess is that, you know, it was probably illegal to talk about him in the press back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, the government was really, you know, they really kind of de- clamped down on, on shit like that and... Um, unfortunately, and that was part of the, one of the reasons why my father—he was a physician in Cape Town—and he he hated apartheid. And um, I remember when I was very young, he used to go and work, you know, in the townships, which are a lot of the kind of little towns, shanty towns that kind of started to build up around a lot of the larger cities, because um, a lot of the the laborers would come in from from these homeland areas, more traditional farming the homelands and mm. settle around the cities looking for work. And they were essentially like shanty towns <clears throat> with poor sanitation, medicine, you know, education. So he would go and work in those areas. When we, I remember as, you know, as a kid, he would go in and just kind of volunteer. Um, and he just, he just hated the regime. And back in the 80s, he didn't, you know, he didn't foresee what the future was going to be like, you know, releasing Mandela, new government. Um, so he, he, got, he got a chance to, to move to the U.S. You know, my, my folks had separated when I was very young. And so he moved here, and I still stood at, school, at high school. And so when I finished high school, that's when, you know, I got this green card. And, uh, but by then, when I left... Um, South Africa, things had already started to change. Like Nelson Mandela was re- had already been released from prison. Um, you know, they were going to have the first multiracial election since ever. And uh, so it was a big deal. But I thought, hey, you know, this was a chance to come to the U.S., see what it's going to be like. And I just kept an open mind, right? But I, I settled here and I liked it. And I've kind of built a life for myself here. Is Bainbridge Island and Seattle comparable to Cape Town in any fashion, other than Seattle being a port and Cape Town being a port? You know, um, it's hard. Like, Cape Town, you know, it's it's a developing country. I mean, there's some sim- similarities, but, you know, people often ask me, like, what's it like? 
and what was it like in apartheid. It's, it's hard to explain because it was such a unique kind of thing, apartheid. But <clears throat> maybe, you know, the closest I can think, maybe it was kind of like growing up in, in Mexico, you know, in a, in a middle-class family, a wealthy family, you know. You, you're kind of in this developing country, but, you know, if you're wealthier you have access to pretty much first world things and a lot of the cities kind of evolved, um, you know, into kind of developed countries, but it's kind of this kind of dichotomy of like very rich and very poor. And um, so, you know, yeah, you you have, you know, a lot of the benefits of, you know, living kind of a, a developing country. Um, but, um, yeah. Are you a big reggae music fan? I'm not huge, but I do like reggae. I actually like all types of music. Yeah, yeah. a couple of favorite artists at all? You know, there's a guy that I actually just uh, found that I really love. He's a British artist. His name Nick Melvey. Freaking great, man. He was um, he actually came to Seattle probably, I want to say, six months ago. And I went to go and see him. So, you know, I listened to Spotify, you know, in my car and while I was driving around. And I came across this guy. Um, kind of indie, indie type of music, kind of folk. Um, I tend to listen to a lot of like indie rock, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he popped up, and uh, yeah, so I'm listening to a lot of him at the moment. Nice, he's awesome. Yeah, um, I'll let you get back to work here. Um, what are some of your big plans uh, for the future? And do you have any municipality type work where you work with cities and governments um, on? <clears throat> Like the rain off, I think that's a great idea. I'd love to see you dump a bunch of shells down by the ferry and such. Yeah. We've started to work with some of the parks. Um, so here on Bainbridge Island, we were working with the Parks Board. Uh, we did a little project for them down in, in um, Pritchard Park. They kind of built um, a little monument um, down on the waterfront. And we're using the resin bound um, for some of their pathways and around this monument. And it works really well there permeable surface, the guys like it, they kind of like the look. So I think we'll do more and more of that and try to introduce more shell. Like we'll use the shell if it's in the right area, if it works well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't want to kind of force it on everyone. I mean, I think when we started our company, um, we're still learning about the material, understanding, you know, how it works, where to use it. But I think we have a much better sense of like, how and where to use it now. And then also trying to incorporate other new materials, so when we work with clients, um, if they like the look of the shell, but we go to the site and we say it's just, you know, this may not be the best place for it because, um, you know, with a lot of the fir trees here, a lot of the needles will kind mm-hmm. of come in and uh, maybe ruin the, sh- ruin the look of it or if it's in an area that um, is very damp or under a lot of shade, you know, you may get algae growth you can kind of get that petunia look. Some people like it. But it's something that we've kind of learned about um, that we just need to make sure that wherever it's installed, that, you know, those um, potential issues are Get made, sunlight made aware or, you know, in areas where there's a good amount of sunlight, it works great, man. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly those, those homes that are right, right on the water because essentially using a material, well, it's a local material, it's like literally the shell. On your doorstep. Right. That's what I love about it, too. It's, it's just local, local material. Yeah. That's cool how passionate you are. I think it's a, a niche idea, but I think just like this podcast is pretty niche. It's uh, Bainbridge Island-centric. 
but it's nice to have additional things. So you're just not a one trick pony. Yeah. For sure. All right, Mike, um, shell scapes.com. If you want to learn more or hire Michael for your landscaping, the mark, I'm sorry. <laughs> to, that's why I say, I tell everybody I'm Timothy, not uh, Tim, because you get Mike and Mark all mix, mixed up. <laughs> mark. Call Mark at <laughs> My apologies. Um, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much, Timothy. I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversation. It was good. Um, you've been listening to Bystander Podcast. Be kind. <laughs>